Father, looking at that, we would pray, we'd pray for more. We'd ask that you would give us more lives for you, given to you, surrendered to you, more lives that want to be lived in adoration of you and in submission to you. We pray that you would give us more as a church. We pray that you would teach us how to serve you when it's hard. We thank you that uh, you strengthen and sustain us and that we find when we step out in faith to serve you in the things that are hard, that you are with us and in fact have gone before us and you sustain us. Thank you, Jesus, that in you all things hold together. So now we turn our attention to your word and we pray that you would give us minds to receive and hearts to receive. May nothing in us resist the word that you have for us today. Lord Jesus, guard my mouth to preach and proclaim what is true. We delight in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Colossians chapter one as we continue in our series in Colossians. And while you're turning there, I'll tell you that as I was preparing Sermon this week, I I found myself thinking about the British monarchy, which may sound odd. I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, Every time I learn more about the British kings and queens of the past, I always think to myself that it's such a unique thing, uh, probably, I would would imagine, to be a a British monarch. Because the reality is, it seems like one of the toughest things that I continue to learn about as as I, you know, uncover things is how hard it must be to have a personal identity to be, you know, in, as it stands now, Elizabeth, just a person, right? But to also be the queen and that you can never just be one of those things, that you're always both of them. So for instance, Queen Elizabeth can never say, I'm just gonna take off the queen hat for a little while. I'm just gonna be Elizabeth. I'm gonna walk around the streets. I'm gonna do the thing I wanna do. She's always, always the queen, yes? So the demands of being the sovereign, the demands of the crown are always there. Uh, they are, she is never apart from them and that's the way it's always been with a monarchy. And the reason I thought about that as I was preparing the text that we're gonna look at this week and the sermon this week is because there's something similar going on in this text. There's this idea I think that some of us operate in that um, to serve Christ, to operate in the role of a servant of Christ is somehow a higher level of Christianity than to just be a Christian. But one of the things that Paul is gonna reinforce for us today in the text is that to be a Christian, to have the personal identity of being a follower of Jesus and belonging to him, is cannot be separated from bearing the role of being the servant of Christ. That those two things always go together. To be in Christ is to be his servant and you can never take off that role and just live in the identity. Does that make sense? In the same way that Queen Elizabeth can never, can never take off the role of the crown and just bear the personal identity of being Elizabeth, she must always be both those things. The reality uh, that the scriptures give to us for followers of Jesus is that to be a Christian is to be a servant of Christ and to wear that role and to always wear that role. It's not just for some version of Christianity that's further up down the road than perhaps I am right now. And so Colossians 1, uh, chapter 24, or verse 24, excuse me, through chapter 2, verse 5 is going to reinforce that idea for us. It's going to talk about what does it look like to serve Christ and to, to take up that role. Now, let me say uh, that I was thinking about this this week it, it, before I move forward in the text. 
was just thinking about if I'm a Christian uh, and I'm here today and I am not serving Christ in any intentional way, I'm, there's nothing that I'm doing. Perhaps it's because I'm just not sure how to or what he's made me for, or maybe it's just because I, I just haven't taken that up and I haven't done that. I asked myself the question, how would I hear this sermon? Now, you may not think I ever think about how you hear it, but I do, right? So I was like, how would I hear this sermon? And I'd imagine that I might hear it as one of two things, or maybe both. I might hear it as, you know, this is just kind of the, the sort of thing that a preacher's supposed to say is that we're supposed to serve Christ, right? That there's supposed to be this intentional life of service to him. It's just sort of the thing preachers say because we're supposed to say it. But I imagine I might also feel like the preacher was trying to give me a guilt trip. The preacher was trying to guilt me into giving my time, my energy, my money, whatever, in order to serve Christ. I want to just, if I can, address that right at the beginning. I absolutely want to give you a guilt trip. I'm just kidding, I, I don't want to do that. I have no intention to give you a guilt trip and to get you to serving the Lord. Uh, I have something much deeper in my heart for you than that, much more significant in my heart for you than that. I am, uh, as your pastor, and if today's like your first time here and you're like, you're not my pastor, well, today I am, okay? Today I'm your pastor. As your pastor, I am jealous for you for two things to happen through your life. I am jealous that God would get glory from your life because he's claimed it. He has, if you're in Christ, he, he owns you. He has claimed you. You are his. And by some great act of mercy, he is yours. You know what I mean when I say that? You are his, but he is also yours, which is absolutely remarkable. It's a profound act of mercy. And I am absolutely, insanely jealous that God would get glory out of your life, out of your years on earth, out of, the, out of the breath that you breathe, that God would get glory from it. That at the end of your life, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 70 years from now, that you wouldn't look back and you would say, there was nothing that was spent for Christ in this life. It was all spent for me. It was all spent on my agenda, my initiatives, my thinking, my desires, and none of it was spent for him. I want so much for God to get glory from your life. The other thing I'm jealous for is for you to get reward from him. I want very much for you to hear well done, good and faithful servant, and to receive the unfading crown of glory that will be your reward for service well given. I want that for you. This is how Paul puts it when he talks about it in 1 Corinthians, not in the text that we're looking at today, but he puts it this way. He says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, that's Jesus, if the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though it's he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. I want very much for you to receive the reward that Paul talks about there. So I have no interest in guilt tripping you. Here's a little, a little um, thing that you probably need to be aware of. For pastors, when, when we lead churches, um, one of the realities, so our church is growing, numerically it's growing, um, which is 
great, we're, we're pleased with that. We, we want there to always be space for more people here, yes? Should always be space for anyone who would come. So this, that would be our desire, our heart. But one of the things that as a leader you can get tricked into thinking is that you're doing a good job just because the thing you're leading is growing. And that's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily true that just because something is growing, uh, an organization or a church in this case, is growing numerically, that doesn't mean that you're doing a great job. We can pat ourselves on the back. We can kind of deceive ourselves. It becomes very easy to trick yourself into thinking like, hey, we're doing pretty good, right? And it can become real easy to begin to think that that, that in fact is the point. And then there are all kinds of little subtle motivations, uh, subtle little rewards that kind of as numerical growth happens, there are all kinds of subtle little things that begin to trick your brain into thinking that you are really accomplishing your purpose. But I can't, uh, and sorry, just to continue that thought. And, and here's what happens. So you begin to think numerical growth is the purpose. And then what really gets kind of, what really creeps in is the idea, well, if we wanna keep growing numerically, then what we need to do is make it as comfortable and as easy as possible for people. And then more people will be willing to come. And I just can't go there. The text that we're gonna look at today just won't let us go there. There is something that we have in mind that is so much more important than numerical growth. And again, we we want more and more people to call this place home because we want people who have walked away from the church and we want people who have been wounded by the church and we want people who have never given a hearing to Jesus to find that this is a place where you can call it home and people will listen and, and, and labor with you over the hard questions of life and they'll be with you in hard moments and where we talk about what is meaningful and true. Like we, we want all that to happen. But more than that, we want, we want for you to get the reward from Jesus that is yours for a life well lived. We want you to serve him. We want you to serve him when it's hard. We want you to serve him when it's hard because he gets glory and we believe you will receive a reward and we want that. We want much more than that, just that you would cross the starting line of faith. We want you to walk with Jesus to completion, to maturity. And because we are deeply engaged in that, in fact, our mission statement is to seek the good of the West Shore and beyond, which is rooted in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse seven. But the next part of our mission statement, through deep truth, deep lives, and deep love for the glory of Christ is rooted in this text that we're gonna look at today, Colossians 1.28, where we hear these words. Him we proclaim, meaning Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our desire, to present you. And I love that, because that idea mature, it echoes something Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter two, where he's talking about the idea that when Jesus comes back, Paul believes he's going to, in some way, shape, or form, present the lives of the people he has invested in as a leader and as a disciple. He's gonna present their lives to the King of kings and Lord of lords as evidence that his life has been well spent. And so again, we hear that word here that Paul says, we want to present you, we'll present you to who? Present you to Jesus, mature in him, complete in him. That's our desire. And so if this text is really about 
and I think it is, is about what does it look like to serve Christ? And he's going to give us some specific thoughts about what does it look like to serve Christ. And the big idea, and I'll read it for you in just a second, is essentially to say this. To put it really simply, serving Christ is hard. That's the big idea today. Serving Christ is hard. And he's gonna give us three ways that it's hard so that we might be better prepared to do it when it's hard, yes? Okay, so that's, that's what we're after today. Read with me Colossians chapter one, starting in verse 24 and down through chapter two, verse five. He says this, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Well, as I said, the, the idea of this text, to put it simply, is that serving Christ is hard. You may have noticed at a number of places that Paul talks about his toil, his struggle. This text is actually organized. Here's a little Bible study tip for you when you're reading the, your scriptures. You may notice in certain sections that the section begins with an idea and ends with the same idea and sort of the, the idea is going this direction towards the center of it. Also then match the ideas that once you get to the center, start to go back. That's a certain f- outline that Paul often uses. It's called chiasm. You do not need to know that, right? But what it means is when you see it, whatever's at the middle, that's the thing that the whole passage is pointing towards. And so at the middle of this is verse 29 and chapter two, verse one, where he says, for this, in other words, to present everyone mature in Christ, what he's just said in verse 28, for this, I toil, I struggle with all the energy that God powerfully works within me. And then in chapter two, verse one, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. In other words, do you get the idea that what he's saying is the work that I am doing is hard work, yes? He's, he's talking about his ministry that God has called him to and he's saying it's hard. In fact, he begins the whole passage by saying, I am filling up, in my suffering, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. So, the, the general idea that he's trying to convey to us is that serving Christ is hard. Now, let me give you three reasons why that's the case. The first one is this, because suffering is strategic. 
Suffering is strategic. By that I mean that God intends to use suffering, the suffering of his people, to accomplish his purposes. Look at what Paul says in verse 24, just to start the whole passage. One of the most interesting and and perhaps, if we're honest, confusing passages or verses in all the Bible. Because he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That seems straightforward enough, right? Okay, I get that. Like, if I'm suffering and it's somehow helping you, then I can, I can rejoice in that. I can see how I might rejoice in that. I, I'm happy that that would somehow benefit you, that I would suffer, maybe even make me willing to suffer. That's what he's saying. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. But then he goes on to say something that's really baffling. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now that should strike you as really odd, does it? Like what could be, the question that should jump to our mind is what could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? And because we've been reading Colossians up to this point, and if you've cheated and read ahead, it's not cheating by the way, please do it, all right? If you've read chapter two of Colossians, you understand that Christ has been adamantly trying to make the argument there is nothing insufficient in Christ's work. Nothing has to be added to it. Nothing you could do could make the salvation that you have in Christ by grace through faith, nothing could make it more complete. He just spent the verses before these talking about how amazing Christ is. And if you were with us last week, we put that into two categories that Paul really wanted to argue, that he is a sufficient savior and that he is a sovereign source. And that's what makes him so unique, that he's both these things. And so he just got done arguing. He's sufficient. Nothing needs to be added to him. And he's gonna argue the same thing in chapter two. So why then... Would he begin and and state in verse 24, begin this little section by saying, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Seems like he's, you know, gone bananas, right? He's gone crazy. He just said there's, it's, his sufferings are completely sufficient. Well, let's then identify what he can't mean, given what he said in chapter one and will say in chapter two, what he can't mean is that he is somehow adding to, to Christ's sufferings, their ability to redeem us from sin and death. He can't mean that because he's just got done saying that nothing needs to be added to Christ's sufferings. So what then could he mean? Well, what I think he means is something similar to what he says in Philippians chapter two, when he's talking about this gift that the Philippians are sending him, it's a financial gift, and Epaphras brings the gift to him, and he uses almost the exact same language in that chapter as he uses here to simply say this, Epaphras has filled up what was lacking in your gift to me. Well, what was lacking in their gift? They needed someone to bring the gift from them to Paul. And the same idea is present here. So what he's saying is not that anything is insufficient in Christ's sufferings, except for the fact that we cannot visibly see Christ's sufferings. We need someone to display them for us. Now remember in John chapter 12, Jesus is talking to a crowd and one of the things he says is, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That's, he says it in John chapter 12, verse 32. And then it says after that, because you're prone to hear that and think, oh, when I'm lifted up, meaning like when I'm, when I'm resurrected, when I'm glorified, when I'm exalted. But the very next verse says, he said this to show by what kind of death he would die. In other words, when he said lifted up, he literally meant lifted up on a cross, 
when I am put on the cross and lifted up above the earth, suspended on a cross, I will then through that act, through my suffering, draw all men to myself. Do you see that? That's what he's getting at in John chapter 12. The same idea is here. What Paul knows is this. How does Christ draw people to himself? He does it through his suffering. What is lacking in those sufferings? What is lacking is that not everyone can visibly see them. So they need a demonstration of those sufferings. And what Paul understands is this. When I suffer for the sake of Christ, I display Christ's sufferings and therefore enable others to see his sufferings and be drawn to him, as he said in John chapter 12. The suffering of God's people completes the suffering of Christ in that it makes them visible to those who would need to see the sufferings of Christ and be drawn to him. Do you follow that, church? That's what he means when he says in 124, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's the idea that he is conveying. Some have said it this way. Uh, uh, some have said it this way. Christ's suffering accomplished salvation. Our suffering spread salvation. I'll give you two illustrations of that reality. Uh, J. Oswald Sanders, a famous writer, theologian, he tells a story about uh, an indigenous missionary in India, a, a man who was Indian and would go from village to village in India to share the gospel. He'd heard the good news of salvation through Jesus and he was taking it from village to village. And everywhere he went, he would be cast out, cast out of village after village. And he walked because he didn't have much money and he didn't have shoes. He walked barefoot, mile after mile after mile on rock and dirt roads because he knew he had to get the gospel to his people and finally, at the end of one day, he went into a final village as the sun is dusk is coming and its sun's about to set. And he walks in and once more, he's rejected. He's kicked out. They, he preaches the gospel in the city square, in the village square. And they, they say no. And they reject him and move him out. And completely dejected and despondent, he lays down underneath a tree, weary, says a prayer and falls asleep. And when he wakes up hours later, he's surrounded by people from the village, which at first thought is kind of scary, right? And they're sitting patiently waiting for him. And he wakes up and they tell him that while he slept, they had come to examine him. And when they examined him, they saw the blisters on his feet. They saw how much he'd suffered just to come to their village. And as a result, they realized you must be a holy man and we were evil for having rejected you. Please tell us what you came to tell us. We will listen. It's the suffering of God's servants that enable the, the sufferings of Christ to become visible. Or another illustration of the same idea, very recent. If you've read recently, China, the Chinese government is cracking down pretty significantly on churches and on believers uh, in their country. And one of the reasons they're doing so is that because from the time Chairman Mao uh, took over the government in China just after World War II, there were about 3 million estimates, uh, these are estimates, but about 3 million Christians in China. There are now, most estimates are somewhere around 67 million Christians in China. So how do you grow from 3 million to 67 million over the course of, you know, a half century or so? Like how does that transpire? How does that take place? And the reason is because of 
people like the people that I'm about to tell you about, 250 pastors who in response to the government statement that they needed to take down the crosses in their churches and burn them and put up the communist flag in their place, that they would not allow anyone 18 or under to come into their churches, that they must register with the government and allow surveillance of every worship service through video uh, throughout their time as a church, that in response to those things, here's the response of 250 pastors who did not declare this privately or secretly, but signed their names to it to declare, we will tell you who we are. And this is what they said. We declare that in matters of external conduct, churches are willing to accept lawful oversight by civil administration and other government departments as other social organizations do. But under no circumstances will we lead our churches to join a religious organization controlled by the government, and there you might read an atheistic government, to register with the religious administration department or to accept any kind of affiliation, and this is the one that got me, this line right here. For the sake of the gospel, we are prepared to bear all losses, even the loss of our freedom and our lives. And you and I need to be praying because it is almost assured that they will, in fact, lose those things. How does a nation go from 3 million Christians to 67 million? That's how. Because the suffering of God's servants and the willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel is what propels the gospel forward because in our sufferings, we fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So be encouraged. Ministry is not meant to be easy. Did you know that? It is meant to be hard. Your suffering in the cause of Christ has purpose. It is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions if you will bear it with patience and trust in God. The second reason we see that ministry is hard just in this text, obviously there's more than three, right? But there are three in this text that we're looking at. The second one is this, because our aim is maturity. Because our aim is maturity. Now we already looked at verse 28, right? And just so you know, in the Greek there, it's translated in the English as mature, but mature really does not do service to the word there. In Greek, the word is actually the word for perfection, but the idea that they had is a little different than the way we think of perfection, like done with nothing else to be changed in us is how we think of perfection. The best word that we might find in the English really here is the word complete, that we may present everyone complete in Christ, right? So the idea is Paul understands ministry is hard, not just because, uh, not just because of suffering and difficulty and hardship. Ministry is hard because it is not just helping people be introduced to Jesus. It's walking people to maturity in Jesus, to completion in Jesus. And that means planting your lives among people and sustaining there and having a long obedience in the same direction and investing yourself deeply. It doesn't mean that every person we ever invest in is someone we always invest in, but what it does mean is that it will never be enough for us to simply say, I'm, I just want to see you come into a relationship with Jesus. I have no consideration or concern for how you walk with him going forward, right? Paul understands his mission as to present everyone mature or complete in Christ. And that requires a level of hardship that is not present if your mission is simply an introduction to Jesus. Would you agree with that? 
That, that's what he's getting at, right? And he uses all these phrases. He doesn't just say in, uh, in verse 28 there, but look at verse 25 when he says, he says, I became a minister of the gospel according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God what? Fully known, right? Fully known. He, he uses that kind of language when he says in verse two of chapter two, I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. When Paul uses that idea of mystery here and throughout the book of Colossians, what he's essentially saying is no one really understood God's ultimate plan of salvation was going to be to send Jesus to suffer and die on a cross and rise from the dead. That's, that's the mystery. Christ himself is the mystery. And now he's revealed that mystery because Christ has come. He has been crucified. He has been resurrected. And now my delight, Paul says, is to proclaim that that mystery is Christ and to help others then grow into him, into completion in him, into fullness in him. And so he knows that that's challenging, that it's difficult. I love the way he expresses it in another book, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 through 20. He's gonna talk about his sufferings here, so back to our first point. If you say, well, what were the sufferings that he saw as filling up Christ's afflictions? Uh, here they are in verse 24, but he says something at the end I want you to pay attention to in verse 28. So verse 24, he says, five times, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if I didn't say that. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then look at what he adds. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In other words, what I think Paul is getting at there in that last little phrase is exactly what he's talking about in Colossians 1.28 when he says, I, I know that my mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. So in addition to all these sufferings, do you know what else I feel? I feel anxious. I feel this turmoil in my soul for the reality that, that something would throw my people off track that something would deceive them or cause them to lay down their mission for Christ, that, in, that something would stand in the way of them getting to this fullness, this completion in Christ. I feel anxiety over that, he actually says. Now, this was really helpful for me because as a, as a pastor, one of the things that I, I used to think was that if I just trust God enough, I'll never feel anxious over your lives. I'll never worry about whether you're growing or not. I'll just trust God. He's got you. And he's gonna, he's gonna grow you. And then I, I read this and I go, oh, okay. So if Paul's expressing that he feels this, this turmoil in him for this, then surely I should feel it too. And I, I do. I'll, I'll let you in on a, it's kind of a little reality, not because maybe it will help you as well. Uh, Sunday afternoons around my house are, are a bit of an interesting time. Um, 
I found out I'm not the only one. Thankfully, I've, I've learned from other pastors that this is a pretty common experience that after this, I'm not a lot of fun to be around. Uh, so like when you see me walking out of the building, there's something that gets spent in you in this activity of preaching that is overwhelming. I, mean, I feel like every Sunday, um, like I'm trying to give you a seven course meal and, and I'm like a, and I'm the vessel in which it has to be delivered and I'm like a saucer, you know, that a teacup fits on and I'm trying to fit the steak and the sides and I just can't, you know, that's why I go long sometimes. It just feels like, I mean, I know, I know that I'm the size of a saucer and I know that the gospel is a seven course meal and there's just no way. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And, and so, you know, when I get home, I feel this uh, self-doubt and this, I should have said it this way or I didn't say that or I, I was too much this or not much that. And I used to think that, here's how I used to process that. I used to process that and think um, when I, when I, if I gotta keep growing in maturity and as I do, I'll get past that. And there are certainly parts of it that are worrying about what other people think about you and that stuff has to be put to death. That's gotta go, right? And so he is putting that to death it's not so much worrying about how other people perceive you. Like I said, that's the stuff that gets put to death. The reality is when you understand your insufficiency for the task at hand, it's so overwhelming on the backside, you never feel like you did well enough, ever. There is never a Sunday where I walk away and thought, I did that well. That never happens. And I used to think that that was a problem. I used to think, and, and honestly, it has been so overwhelming at points that I have said, I don't, want to, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too much. I can't handle it. And I, I didn't hand in my resignation. <laughs> I'm not stupid enough to think Sunday afternoon's the time to uh, think through your career path choices. But if given a choice, most Sunday afternoons, I would, I would you know, go sell insurance or Whatever one of you would give me a job doing, I don't know. <laughs> the thing that I realized because of instruction from Paul and others is that I used to think, God, take it away. That was my prayer. Take it away. I don't want to feel this way. I just don't want to feel this way anymore. I can't handle every week. I can't handle this every week. I can't. And do you know what God said? He didn't say, okay, I'll take it away. He said, no, it's always gonna be there. Always. It will never go away because that's the cost. One of them, anyway. That's the price. And then he asked me, are you willing to pay it? Ministry's hard. We are insufficient vessels the task is too great, it's too big, he's too glorious, we're too small. None of us is enough. And you will always, if you will give your life to serving him and to helping others come to fullness in Christ, to maturity in Christ, if you will give yourself to that, you will, you will always feel this feeling. He will put to death the stuff that doesn't need to be there, but he will always have it there and he will have it there because he intends it to be hard so that you might lean into him 
and remember that they don't need you, they need him. That's how he does it. He does it by never allowing it to not be hard. That's what I'm learning. He does it by never allowing it to not be hard. The third reason I think this text gives us that ministry is hard, I'm gonna just state this one succinctly here, is because human logic is not wise, but it is plausible. Look at what he says in verse four of chapter two. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you or deceive you, right, with plausible arguments. And I love that he uses that word plausible arguments because I think sometimes we think that the logic of the world and the things that that distract us and take us off course for Christ are gonna be really obvious to spot, but they're not always obvious to spot. In fact, quite often they're very hard to spot because they seem really plausible. They seem really logical according to human logic, right? I mean, this is why he says in verse, in verse 28 that we saw, it's why he says warning everyone and teaching everyone. In other words, it's two sides of a coin. One of the things we do is we teach and we instruct so that you would grow to maturity. But the other thing that we do is that we warn and we point out where false teaching is coming in, uh, where something is not true. And the reason we have to do that is because it's those, those false teachings seem really plausible. They're not obvious. And so... Here's what that means. Why is ministry hard? It's hard because the person who wants to serve Christ must be so filled with wisdom and so often go before the throne of God and be so well-versed in God's word and give themselves in devotion to him that they can identify what is true and what is not true, even when what is not true seems really plausible. You have to become a discerning person. Right, just to use the most, the most brass tax example in our cultural day and age, the, the most prevalent example of this is in the realm of sexuality and gender. There are myriad arguments being made right now that seem plausible, that seem compassionate, that seem logical, but none of them are derived from the headwaters of the nature of God who tells us that he has designed sex and gendered existence for good purposes, for good ends, and he delights to see sexuality practiced between a man and a woman in the bonds of marriage. And that stems from who he is. And if we'll utilize it that way, it becomes a tool for God's glory in the world and for our enjoyment and for our flourishing. But when we do anything else with anything outside of that, it becomes a destructive tool. And there are so many arguments being made in so many dizzying fashions and dizzying ways, but none of them find their headwaters in who God is in his very nature, except for the way he has designed it to be. And so we say things like, sure, why not live together before you get married? You gotta figure out if you're compatible, right? Or we say things like, you know what, yeah, my friend, you're same-sex attracted, you should, just, you should just step forward into that. Rather than saying, we will do the hard work with you, loved one. We will do the hard work with you of seeking transformation in your heart and desires. And if God should not work that transformation, if he should not bring it, then we will walk with you on the long road of celibacy for a lifetime. And we will be with you now and at the end of that road. That's harder. That's harder. Human logic is not wise, but it does sound really plausible. 
And one of the reasons ministry is hard is because we have to know. We have to be able to apply the gospel to every circumstance and situation. We do not get the luxury of not thinking about politics and power. We do not get the luxury of not thinking about sexuality. We do not get the luxury of not thinking about a great theology of work and vocation. We do not have the luxury because we can never divorce our identity as a person who is in Christ from our role as a servant of Christ. And to serve him well means to step into hard things. And one of those hard things is to be able to discern and declare and to warn against things that seem plausible but are not wise. It's hard work. It's hard work. Now the, the last, last maybe question to answer here very quickly. How do you rejoice in doing things that are hard? And how? Right? Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. But how do you do that? And the answer, thankfully, is given to us in the text in verse 29 when he says this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I love that because do you see what he's just said there? I toil, I work hard in the work that God has given me to do. But what energy source do I draw from in order to do that work? His. In other words, because of this mystery, which we saw up a few verses before that verse, right? This mystery, which is Christ in you, the message of the gospel, the great joy of the gospel is not Christ redeems you and then leaves you alone to figure it out on your own, but Christ redeems you and then takes up residence inside you to shape and form you and empower you so that you have now the resource Paul is talking about. When he says, I toil, I struggle, I work, but how do I do it? I do it with all the energy with which he provides. What a great and glorious truth that you and I need to cling to because ministry, serving Christ is hard, but what has he just promised us? I will fill you with all the power that you need to do it. And I can promise that because my son has been crucified and he has been resurrected and now he lives inside of you. And you have a power source unlike anything you ever have ever seen in all of life, I will give you all that you need. That's how you rejoice. That's how you rejoice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are good. And I do pray right now, if, if in any way, Lord, I have conveyed um, an intended guilt trip, just do away with that, diminish that. I don't want that. We don't want that. But what we do want, Lord, what we do want is for us to receive the conviction we need to receive and to move forward to serve you because you're worthy. You are worthy of the glory that is received when we will serve you and especially when we serve you when it's hard. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've saved a little time here on the back end. We're gonna sing two songs. Uh, during that first song, let's just respond. Let's just respond and worship to the Lord. That's the right thing for our hearts to do. During that second song, some of our prayer folks are gonna be up here and they would just love to pray with you. And I have in mind specifically, some of you um, have been struggling to step into something God wants you to do because it's hard. And we just wanna, maybe you can come and, and just be prayed for that God would give you the power to step into it. And some of you are walking in it and the toil is heavy right now. 
and we wanna pray for you too. So we just wanna use that time. You can be considering that as we respond in worship. During that second song, and then we'll just, George will dismiss us. We'll just kind of quietly dismiss, but we wanna have some time to pray. If that's where you're at, uh, just invite you into that to be prayed over and to receive a word from the Lord in that. Okay, why don't you stand with me? Let's sing to the Lord. Let's close our time together.